we, we knew that, that if we were going to be an employer, if we were going to grow a business, then there needed to be a, a real valid reason to support that that desire to grow. Um, so early on, we, we knew that that um, if we were going to grow a business, it was to, to be able to um, build long-term generational wealth for the community that we were working within. Um, and Asheville's provided us uh, an ample, interesting um, playground to, to have that conversation in. Um, we just, we, last year we raised our, our minimum wage to $20 an hour and, and that felt like a huge accomplishment, but even at $20 an hour, it's really hard to find an apartment. Um, and it's, uh, you know, the, the living wage calculators that, that people use really are um, meant for a one person, no kids, no health issues, no, you know, familial responsibilities, like the, their income is just paying for their own livelihood and that's, that's not most people's realities. Welcome to the Small Business Storytellers, the show where we dive deep into the stories and secrets of businesses focused on not just making money, but making the world a better place. My name is Seth Silvers, and my passion is helping businesses grow that are making the world a better place. Every episode, you will hear from transformational leaders and business owners as we dive into what has helped them grow and what has helped them stay true to themselves along the way. Also, Every week, we are hosting live conversations with our guests in Fireside Chat, where we give you, the audience, the opportunity to ask them your burning questions. So make sure to join us live on Fireside Chat on your mobile device. Let's dive in. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Small Business Storytellers. Today's going to be an exciting episode because uh, we are diving into some stickier topics um, and talking about why there might be too many businesses, why we might not be paying enough for things. A lot of uncomfortable conversations, but conversations that I think are super helpful for us to have uh, when we're talking about business. And so on today's episode, we have Connie Matisse, who is uh, one of the owners at East Fork, which is a pottery manufacturing company in Asheville, North Carolina. Connie, how are you doing today? I am. Um, I'm actually. I'm feeling uh, more more grounded and generally happy and content than I have been in uh, the past couple of years. So I'm, I'm kind of taking the wins when I when I can. And so at this moment, I'm doing really well. I'm excited to good, be here. Good. Yeah. Good. Good. Well, that's wonderful. I've been looking forward to this interview because as soon as I stumbled upon East Fork, which was through the B Corp community, as you guys are a B Corp. Uh, it was very evident that you do things differently and that you do things with intentionality from how you create your products to how you communicate about your company to how you treat your people. And um, there's so many things that we could dive into with that. But first off, wh- I would just love to kind of get some of your insight and thoughts into um, the way you are doing things. I know that's a big that's a big like statement to dive into, but it's so evident that you're doing things differently than, okay, here's corporate America and here's how to build a business. And, you know, you go as fast as you can and sell as much as you can and charge, you know, this is how you charge and this is how you treat people. Like you guys are on a different path as far as business goes. So take me back to like early days of East Fork and when things were getting started, um, what were some of the things that like solidified, like, we're going to build this thing differently? Yeah. So the, the company had an interesting start that, that set us on a pretty different foot than, than startups get set on. Um, my husband, Alex, who's our, our board chair and president now, um, was a potter. He had, 
had studied in a very traditional um, ceramic lineage um, with North Carolina potters, the three years of traditional apprenticeship, um, had dropped out of college and um, and continue, decided that he wanted to be a potter for life. Uh, when I met him, I was deep in an existential crisis at 24, and he was like, I, I know exactly what my purpose is. I am a I'm going to be a potter. I'll be a potter till the day I die. And I was like, whoa, okay. Uh, we're in different places. Um, but he just is, he's a really driven person. He had this vision for something that he wanted to create. And he just every day would, would wake up and um, I'd, I'd look at different drawings of the kilns that he was going to build and he sketches of the pots that he was going to make. Um, and he just, he just did it one, one step at a time. Um, and, and then, you know, a couple years into just making pots alone in the woods, um, he, a friend of ours, John Vinkland, was was setting out to take a similar path, and um, and then I was there, still trying to figure out what I was doing in North Carolina. And the three of us coming together um, realized that we had um, something pretty unique on our hands. That the the three of us um, got along really well. Um, we had a, a shared vision of um, doing something that that brought a lot of people and a lot of moving parts together. Um, we kind of had these. Um, just glimmerings, these like inklings of, of a, a vision for what we could do together um, that translated uh, pottery in the tradition that we we made it in and uh, kind of brought it, bridged it into a, uh, a new reality that, that was a little bit more accessible, that brought more people into the fold that wasn't so isolating. Um, and we got really lucky. I, I think our, our advisory board often calls out that it's, it's pretty unusual that three people um, have such distinct uh, skill sets um, and kind of meet can, can meet over a shared vision. Um, and, and we've done a really good job for the most part early on of like kind of staying in our own lanes um, and then coming together when we need to. Um, and that's, that's changed a lot. It's as the business has grown, we've had to really dive deeper into the, how do we work together sort of conversations. Um, but yeah, the, the three of us just came together and we're like, we, we have this, this um, commitment to, making pottery that's that's really unique it was right when um pottery was starting to like get kind of hot in like brooklyn and los angeles and we saw all these like kind of art artsy cool shops having pottery pop-ups and we'd look at the pottery and be like that's not very good like that's someone who's trying to use words like wabi-sabi to justify bad pottery and they're selling it for all sorts of money like we could we could inter ha we have an interesting thing to say in this conversation um, and so I came from a you know, big city and, and from a, a restaurant background and uh, an activism background. And um, so kind of naturally took the lead on um, figuring out how we communicate what we were doing to a broader audience of, of people who weren't familiar with, with um, craft pottery. Um, and it kind of just kind of started rolling from there. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing to always see the difference just the different places that every journey starts. And it is, I mean, it's so where that you started with intentionality. I think with where your company's at now, it's not a place that you arrive um, by accident. And I think that when we do things intentionally, I think we're rewarded. Um, and you guys have been rewarded. I mean, now you're sitting at 115 people, still what the government would call a small business, but what most of America would call not a small business. Um, and on your website, you have one interesting thing uh, that kind of got me thinking about diving into how you treat your people and how you pay them. Uh, you mentioned that you are committed to providing solid middle-class manufacturing jobs to your Asheville community. Um, tell me more about why 
why you think it's important to like make that known and why that is something to focus on. Yeah. I think it's such an interesting conversation to be having at this moment in a town like Asheville, um, especially after two years of pandemic where Asheville had already kind of been put on all of the best places to visit list, best places to relocate. Um, when over the past two years, the the influx of, of people trying to flee bigger cities to find a, um, a more manageable place to live that was that was beautiful and artsy and, right, right. and funky. Um, you know, the, the city just got completely overwhelmed with with people coming in um, to the point where people who were employers who were paying living wage jobs, you know, paying a, what's a certified living wage, um, were finding that their workforce couldn't couldn't find a place to live in Asheville. They couldn't afford to get their car fixed when it broke. Um, the it, the city has priced out people who've, who were born here um, so effectively. Um, and it, 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 you can't really run a, a, a tourist town. Like there's when the only jobs are um, in food and beverage um, and, and hotels, um, you know, it, it just becomes like a, a Disneyland sort of place um, instead of a place that, that people actually want to, to live and, and have families and, um, and set roots in. Um, and it's been really sad to see um, people having to to leave Asheville uh, because they suddenly, they have, after having been born and raised here, suddenly they just could not afford rent. No, or not even couldn't afford it, but couldn't even like, and apartments just like were, were nowhere to be found. Um, and I, I think it's, as we... Um, we we knew that that if we were going to be an employer, if we were going to grow a business, then there needed to be a, a real valid reason to support that that desire to grow. Um, so early on, we we knew that that um, if we were going to grow a business, it was to to be able to um, build long term generational wealth for the community that we were working within. Um, and Asheville's provided us a, a ample, interesting um, playground to to have that conversation in. Um, we just we last year we raised our, our minimum wage to twenty dollars an hour and and that felt like a huge accomplishment. But even at twenty dollars an hour, it's really hard to find an apartment. Um, and it's uh, you know the, the living wage calculators that that people use really are um, meant for a one person, no kids, no health issues, no you know familial responsibilities. Like that, their income is just paying for their own livelihood, and that's that's not most people's realities. Um, and so it felt like if we were going to be, if we're going to be making a thing and, and selling a luxury item to people who did do have disposable income, um, we needed to address the fact that like most people who are working at our company wouldn't be able to, to, to purchase the, the objects that they were making in the store that, that we were selling them in. Um, yeah. And it's, it turns out that the unit economics for making something in this country, um, are, are not, um, the odds are not in in our favor with the with the way our mm -hmm. economic system is is set up. The um, the government doesn't make it super easy for businesses our okay. size to to make the math work. Yeah, and I I mean from a business perspective, we're in different industries. Obviously, you know, service and podcast agency and pottery manufacturing. But uh, I'm in Fort Collins and Fort Collins and Asheville are often called like sister cities. And we share positions on that list. And we've seen really similar things happen in our town over the last few years. And um, friends and family that I know that like in the last couple of months, they've all like moved out of Fort Collins, not because they want to, um, but because they 
they kind of have to, and they realize, you know, it's more important for us to be in a place where we can um, start building that like financial future for ourselves and for our family. And so I think it's an, it is an interesting place to be in. Um, how, what are some of the things that you think need to change? Um, just like business wise, uh, you talk about, you know, government and kind of how the business works in our country and unit economics. Like, are there a couple like big things that you think might kind of be broken with how this all works that would, if changed, maybe make a difference in some of these communities and in some of not even just communities, but some of like the people that, you know, like some of their lives. Yeah. Seth, you're, you're asking me this question, a very interesting moment um, where while, while I, I did say early on that I was feeling like personally quite content and, and generally happy. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also just been like feeling not just disillusioned, but like firmly convicted that, um, that this, the energy that, that we have been putting like us as a business and the energy that's, that I see so many people putting into trying to take these, these systems, um, and, and kind of bricolage them and like make all these connections and, um, get this government fund to support this nonprofit, uh, uh, pocket of money to bring this donor together. Like all of these like really complicated webs that are, that are basically just trying to make the systems that we have available to us, um, service our needs. Like I, I, I just, I think that we're wasting our time and energy. Um, I, we just visited this really beautiful, um, concepts, um, in a town called Morganton, it's called industrial commons. They're, they're doing really incredible work trying to, um, build generational wealth, um, in, in the Morganton community and, and keep people, um, keep people there. Um, and, and the, the network of, um, of interconnection that they've built with like all of these different government entities, private entities, nonprofit entities, um, is so admirable and also so complicated that, that my, when I walked away, I was like, Whoa, like if one, like, how do you continue to kind of like build upon this house of cards? Like what happens if one part of this, this ecosystem gets demolished, you know? Um, and they, they're doing so much work to, to kind of safeguard against that. Um, but it's so much work, you know, I just like, I see people just like working so hard to, to make these things work where it's just like that. Again, like even there's only so much we can continue to raise our prices and $22 an hour still is not going to be able to, to close this gap of, of access, um, that, that exists in our, um, in our country. And, um, you know, I, I, sometimes I just, I'm just like, all it would take is the people who have like really a lot of money to just give it away. Not like for us to have these complicated ways of investing money that puts things into these different, you know, just like, just give it away. Um, so, you know, what do I do with that? Like, I, I think right now where I would like to see all anyone who has, who has power, which is all like most of us have some type of power over someone else, like for that, for the work to kind of take that, like the, the inner, the systems work to kind of take a pause and for everybody to, to take a collective step back and drill deeper down into the self work of, Mm -hmm. of, becoming more self-aware, understanding how you are complicit in systems, understanding like what, which choices you're making on a daily basis that have negative impact that you're not yet able to, or, or ready to 
stop making. Like I have so many things that I do on a daily basis that I know are harm causing um, in varying various degrees and, and really sitting with that, making that list of here are all the things that I have yet to um to to say, okay, I'm not gonna do that anymore. Right, um, right. I don't know. I, I think that's where, where everybody needs to be, and especially business owners, um, before you kind of jump into action um, and try to start mm -hmm. fixing things with, um, you know, by, by kind of putting. Yeah, it's a weird balance of recognizing that there's these big systemic problems that in one sense, like other decision makers and other people need to make a lot of changes that will affect the whole system that will, you know, make things more equitable. But at the same time, realizing that, you know, Gandhi was pretty smart when he said, you know, be the change you want to see in the world and that it does start with us. So it's it's this weird, like, and I, th I think you said it well with self-awareness of we have to be aware of like the system, but we also have to be aware that the system changes when we begin to do things differently. And I think even from you hinted at this of like the consumer mindset of just like, you know, how we're maybe participate or contributing to waste or different things and how we engage with products changing. Um, you are a premium product and like pottery is not made to be, you know, used like a couple times and then throw it away. Um, help me to understand and help our audience understand why our perspective of like how we use products probably needs to shift towards, um, maybe even spending more um, on some products, maybe like being more aware of, are we buying products that are going to last? And you know, that where we know where they're made from, like, I know, again, that's a, that's a big topic that we could talk about probably for a couple hours, but um, help our audience understand, like, what should we be thinking about when we're bringing products into our home and when we're exchanging money that we've gone and worked for, for products that we're going to use? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, kind of going back to what I just said about, about needing to um, develop that self-awareness to see where, where you as an individual might still be stuck. Like, this is a big one for me. I, I was just on a rant about, and then I was like, I, I can't believe that I'm the CEO of a manufacturing company. I don't think anyone should, anyone should make a single plate like ever again. Like there's, there's enough plates in the world. And um, you know, like, why do people need to keep making socks? Like, and then literally two days later, this big snowstorm was going to come. I was like looking at my socks and I was like, Ugh. like, and I, I was at the co-op grocery store and I like bought four new pairs of socks. And Alex was like, you literally were just on a rant about how people should stop buying like, it, it. This it's really hard. Like the, this we're so deeply trained to, um, to, to convenience, to like get it now to, um, mm -hmm. I, there just, never not being advertised to in every single direction. I, you know, I participate that I, I, as a, as a business leader, I have a fiduciary responsibility in a, to, <laughs> to sell $18 million of pottery this year, um, in order to keep paying everybody the $8 million payroll that I have to pay everybody. Um, mm -hmm. it's more than that. Actually, I don't, that's $12 million payroll next year. So it's, it, so how do we, I don't know. I, I don't have an answer to this question because I'm currently wrestling with like, yes, I need yeah, to continue yeah. to advertise the pots that we're making. I also want to tell people that they need to slow down, stop buying stuff. And I, I, I do, I feel firm. I, I feel, I have a lot of conviction in the product that we make and, and the way that we make it. Um, I feel like what we're doing and the kind of way that we're modeling 
running a business is is valid and important. And I take that that kind of leadership responsibility very mm-hmm. seriously. Um, and also I, I kind of wrestle with that, like that feeling of, um, of complicity, um, every day. Um, yeah. And yeah. I, so then you think, okay, well, what can I do about it? I do believe I am also a very tactile person. I'm, I'm, I believe in, um, that, that beautiful, thoughtful objects made with intention, um, do have, um, create value and kind of enrich the kind of daily tapestry of your, of your domestic life. And as someone who's now gotten very into being home all the time, like I, I get so much pleasure and joy from like decorating my home and moving things around and, and, Mm -hmm. um, kind of having these objects that I, that I have all these memories associated with, um, and I mean, it's, it's, so it's as basic as that. It's like, are we, are we bringing things into our home, um, that are, that are going to contribute, that, that serve a function that are going to, that are going to make our, our home lives feel, um, more comfortable, safer, that, that really speak to, to, um, our, our own, our own aesthetic qual our, our, our own aesthetic kind of pleasure that, that might be always developing or might be always, um, or, or you might have like a very clear vision of what that looks like. Um, and I think all of your ability to make those choices, um, with intention does come from, um, doing some self inventory and really understanding what, what is valuable to you. What, like, how, how do you relate to objects around you? Um, so that when you're making it, making a decision to buy something new, um, you're doing it from a place of, of, um, having considered how it's going to, I don't know, in, like really inviting it into your home. You, know, you wouldn't just invite mm-hmm. any person that you meet to come and and hang out with you in your kitchen. And I I take that same approach to the to the objects that I choose to bring in to bring yeah, into yeah. my life. And especially for you know so many folks who are um, I just kind of like the if anyone who considers themselves like a progressive person um, who kind of rages against the um, I don't know, the, the callousness of the Republican party and how it doesn't care about people. Like if we're going to continue to purchase objects that are, that are being made by people who are hardly getting paid enough to put food on their Mm -hmm. tables, like that's, that is hypocrisy. It, it just is. Um, sometimes I make those choices and I have to sit with the hypocritic decision that I just made, you know, uh, I think lessening, like becoming more aware of the impact your choices have on, on people, um, and lessening, the frequency with which you make those choices right, right. is something we can all participate yeah. in. Yeah. Yeah. I love the intention that you're putting into your product where you're thinking like, if somebody's going to bring this product in their home, you know, are they going to be able to know that like, you know, the person on the other side that was involved with the making of this product that they're, you know, being taken care of, um, you know, is this product not just being like rushed through as quickly as possible, but there's actually some intention going behind this. And I think any business owner listening, anybody that is, uh, you know, if you're listening to the show, you're probably in some way trying to build something. Um, and I think that we all need to have a little bit more of that with the services or products that we sell of, are we really thinking about like, is this an actual piece of value? Not just, is this an item that I'm selling as much of as I can and getting as many margins so I can have as much money as I can, but like, are we actually giving an item of value or a service of value? And so I love that approach. I'd love to know what are some of the things like, inside the business, like take us the manufacturing line. Um, what are some things that you are doing that maybe go against, uh, 
that maybe kind of go against this mentality of like, okay, let's just do as much as we can, as quick as we can, as cheap as we can, that are really helping there to be that level of like care in your product. I mean, kind of everything we do in our, in our making process is, um, goes against, yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend that if you wanted to like make a quick buck and then have something to retire on quickly that you start a ceramics right. manufacturing company. Yeah, like if a private equity firm came in and they were like joking that they were, you know, they were like hypothetically going to like come and look at your business. I'm sure there would be a lot of things where they're like, okay, you should change that. You should change, like we can squeeze margins here. But what are those things that you're like, no, we're going to keep doing things this way because we know it matters and we know like it matters to the product we're doing. Yeah. I mean, we've had, we've been approached by a bunch of product, uh, private equity, like some of like the, the big players in the DTC space who want to be they were very intrigued by our brand storytelling and the, the kind of our, the brand in general. Um, and immediately they get in there and they're like, well, you don't need to be making this product here. You can make it in Mexico. You can make it in Portugal. You can make it in Portugal where everybody else is making their, their pottery. Like it's all of the other D to C, um, uh, ceramic companies are being, their, their product is being made by the same, by one factory in, in Portugal. And there, it's amazing that what they do over there, but, um, and, you know, it's, it's for us, the teaching, um, ke yeah, keeping those manufacturing jobs here is, is first and foremost, like that's a, that's a big, a big one. Like it just the fact that we are, we're not thinking about, um, moving our production elsewhere. We're here mm -hmm. doing the process top to bottom in Asheville. Um, the, I mean, it's, it's kind of everything that like what we, the last two years, especially, um, we have done some really sobering, um, I just had really sobering conversations around the growth goals we'd put in front of ourselves. And at, at one point realized that like, yes, we probably could hit our, our production and our revenue goals if we continued to, um, kind of keep everybody on the treadmill at top speed. Um, but about a year and a half ago, like people, we were, we personally, as, as the owners of the business, um, had reached a point where we, we were recognizing that if we didn't make a major change to the pace at which we approached our work, like we would be all going down in a burning hellfire. Like we were mm -hmm. so burnt out. We were being so, um, we were just working from a very unresourced, personally unresourced place and like causing a lot of harm to each other, to ourselves neglecting our family's needs, um, neglecting our interpersonal relationships, health, um, just working, working, working. And, and it was, um, when we finally woke up to that and stopped and, and, um, you know, the kind of the, what people say about like everything being able to point back to the top. Um, I used to be so resistant to hearing that from Alex as it felt like an accountability shift of like, Oh, like Connie, you doing that thing is affecting this thing over here. That's way far away. And, um, I wasn't ready to kind of acknowledge that I had that much power. Um, and then when I did, I was like, Oh shit, like, no, I, I'm so burnt out that I'm making really rushed decisions that I'm having these expectations for other people, um, to kind of work at the pace I'm working that are so unrealistic. Um, people are really miserable. Um, and we really started to feel the impact of that and, and had to, um, to, to kind of ask ourselves those harder questions about like, why are we growing? What's, what's the point of it? If everybody that is working with us is, is having a really bad time, um, like who, no one is telling us that we need to do this except for ourselves. Um, and so we've been trying to 
you can't just like, you know, we still have to pay people. So we couldn't just like throw a wrench in it and be like, we're done. We're pausing. Um, we're we're going to stop growing. But we did see what it was like to just incorporate more rests into our, into our personal schedules at work, like to put big time blocks off in the week where no meetings were allowed. People were allowed to do focused work. Um, we're kind of just normalizing, taking more rests and like how, how that, um, translates to the production floor is, um, I mean, a, a small example is that like when you're working as fast as you can and you're, you're not really paying attention to the product, product that you're making, you end up with a lot of, with, with, or yields, you know, you end up getting more seconds. You end up passing a pot that maybe got bonked um, by a, by someone's hand in the very first step of the process, um, and you end up wasting everybody's time. Like the, the next twelve people who touch that pot all have to waste time on um, on doing their part of the process for a pot that is going to end up as trash. Um, and so you're creating waste. You're you're wasting people's energy. Um, you're um, and you're being mindless about the the work that you're doing. Um, so even that type of pausing of like, okay, let's let's get these teams together and say, um, you know, how how can the person in QC say, hey, this I'm noticing that I'm getting pots that have this funny little mark on them, and I think like let's trace that back to what's happening over here, and let's take a collective pause and talk to each other about how we can all work together to improve our processes and move a little bit more slowly in order to um, to to be more intentional and effective with our movements. And um, so just like, I think that's just, can, you can say that about literally any job. Like if you're, if your head is down and you're thinking about like a, a, a goal and you're just like chugging away without ever pausing, taking a breath, resting, seeing what, like taking a, a, a zoomed out look at what you've done, um, it, it's just, you're just in for a mess. Um, right. I mean, so that's, so that's one thing. I mean, the, the product that we make, like the, the clay body that we make is, um, and no one makes pots that look like ours because we use a material that, um, that's very finicky, um, that requires, um, our materials team to kind of be on top of every little detail of particle size. And, um, you know, there's, we, we could very easily just like make a completely different product with much more uniform clay body and, um, make it much more easily, much faster. Um, but it would, you know, it just, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be the product that we, that right, we loved right. and that we designed. Um, yeah. yeah. I think those conversations are so healthy to like step back and realize what, what is growth? Is it purely like revenue? Um, you know, you're in Asheville, I'm in Fort Collins, which means we both know breweries. Um, there's a couple breweries that have, you know, breweries in both cities. And, and I've seen like, you know, there's one that has brewery in both cities that like they overextended themselves and then ended up getting bought out. And you could tell that it was, um, like their goal was to continue growing as fast as possible. And that's not necessarily always wrong. I think you just need to know that. And I think like in Fort Collins, that the frustration with that was, you know, this image of like, we don't need to grow as fast as possible. We're like local, we're craft, we're all this stuff. And then you realize, okay, well, the goal actually is to just keep growing around the world as fast as possible. As opposed to like, there's some brewery owners here that I know that like, they, uh, they've designed their brewery to operate at like maximum capacity to where like when they're operating at full capacity, they're going to be serving locally. They're not going to distribute because of its cost to the environment. Um, and they want to be like an amazing local brewery where they know that they're like eight to 10 people are being taken care of. Well, they enjoy their job. They're compensated. Well, 
neither one is necessarily like wrong. I think it's just right to know like where you stand. Um, and so, yeah, for you as the business owner, kind of as we bring this conversation to a close, like where, I guess, like, I'm just curious, like, where's, where's it going for you as far as like value, as far as goals, like when you're thinking about like, okay, cool, we have this, you know, $18 million, 115 person business, um, kind of the, the big question boiled down is just like, why? And like, where do you see this going, um, for you? And like, what does value in the future look like for you as a business owner? Yeah, I mean, it's a super interesting question, um, and I one that Alex and John and I, as a founding team, are, are starting to have together. And um, I think of of all of the um, areas where, like, this is where we're like the most misaligned, um, and that I think that's I think that's wonderful. Like, what I what we're all coming to realize is that the three of us don't have to have exactly the same um, vision or the same vision for the company, uh, or we can have the same vision for the company, but like how we relate to the company does not have to be the same. Um, Alex, you know, he, he will go down with the ship. Like he wants, East Fork is the thing that he wants to put his, his entire, um, kind of life force behind. And, um, he, but he's also like, he's asking those sorts of questions about like, what is it about my own upbringing that is giving me this like unfettered need desire to like do something as big as possible. And he's, he's made a lot of kind of personal revelations Mm -hmm. over the last six months around that. Uh, you know, John knows that he wants to um, get to a point where he can step away from the CFO role and, and be more in a, of an advisory, play more of an advisory role and um, continue to support the business and, and have, uh, have, but, but kind of move away from his ownership a little bit, figure out how to turn his, uh, distribute his, his ownership across um, other stakeholders at the company. Um, I'm, I'm still really thinking about that for myself. Like I, I want East Fork to, um, I want to do my part now to set East Fork up for success. But I think that, um, one of the, the worst mistakes a founding team could make is thinking that, that you are the one and only person who can do the thing that you want the business to do. Um, mm-hmm. that's if I, I guess I, I, I had a personal experience of ego death over the last, uh, year, um, and it was really humbling and really necessary. And I think it's contributed to me being a, a happier person, but you know, a lot of my attention right now is, is what can I do now to start, um, uh, passing on responsibility, um, really empowering people who are, who are my, um, in my team to, to have more ownership over the processes that they, they have ownership over. And, and how can I start thinking about bringing someone along to maybe, you know, do like a six month apprenticeship period with me, follow me around. And then eventually I can, I can pass the baton to so I think that you're, you're dead in the water. If you start, if you don't think that there's someone else who's eventually going to do the job better than, better than you can, mm-hmm. especially with, um, you know, the, just the, uh, as folks get older and so many people in business who get in this mindset that, that younger generations have nothing to offer, um, their business, you know, have, don't have business acumen, um, I, I think is, is really limiting. Um, so I don't know what my own relationship, I think, I I don't know. I'm still in that, that process of deciding. I have have a lot of other, um, a lot of other interests that are not necessarily served by me, me being in this role. Um, but I do, but it sounds like you're exploring it. Yeah. I'm I'm certain I'm I'm making space to have the, have the, have the conversations. And I want to get East Fork to a point where, you know, more benefits expansion and, um, some sort of profit sharing model, um, uh, you know, all of those things are kind of like established, um, is, mm-hmm. is what I want to yeah. make sure happens before mm-hmm. I duck out. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, this, this has been great. And I think, you know, some of those questions that you're asking again, I think there's no right answer. I think the important thing is that we're asking those questions. I know that over the last year or so, um, I've had a lot of challenges in my life that have probably been, uh, accelerated or struggles in my life that have been accelerated because, um, I have for many years, it was kind of just like, oh yeah, like kind of a hustle and grind, like just build as fast as you can. Um, you know, you just got to build, build, build. And I think, I think the struggle is when we just adopt someone else's view of like, here's what it means to build a business. Here's what it means to be successful as opposed to like having those conversations. And I love that you can be transparent with like, yeah, we're figuring that out. Um, but we know we want to treat our people well. I think, I think that that's gotta be the goal, um, is to be, have space to be able to have those conversations. So I encourage all of our listeners, um, go check out East Fork, eastfork.com. Um, the link will be in the show notes. Um, truly, truly beautiful stuff that you, that you make. Do you have, this might be an impossible pro, uh, question. Do you have a favorite product? I, I've been really loving our black glaze. I'll give you the, the inside scoop is that it's retiring this uh, next week, but we're actually bringing the black it back. mountain. Yeah. Black mountain. Um, but, yeah. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. So I'm, I'm going all black um, in my kitchen these days and the everyday bowl and the mug in black are my two current favorites. Awesome. Well, again, I encourage our listeners head over to eastfork.com or uh, if you're in Asheville, uh, do you guys have a storefront? We do. We have a storefront in Atlanta okay. in Westside Provisions District, and we have a storefront in downtown Asheville. Amazing. So yeah, I'll definitely have to check check one of those out next time I'm in the area. But Connie, this has been wonderful. Uh, this could easily continue. And I'm excited to follow the journey, follow the story of East Fork, um, because we need more businesses that are growing with intention. Um, and that aren't just like staying put saying we're going to be this small little thing, but that I, I think you have a responsibility. I do think you have a responsibility to grow. I don't think that growth means just revenue, but grow and benefits and how you care for humans and, and all of that. So uh, I'm excited to follow where your journey goes. So Connie, thank you so much uh, for joining us on the Small Business Storytellers. This has been wonderful. Thank you, Seth. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to the Small Business Storytellers. If you've wanted to start a podcast and have been wondering if you can use podcasting to grow your business, but don't know where to start, I'd love to talk. Head to successwithstories.com slash podcast to learn exactly how to launch, grow, and profit from a podcast for your business. Again, that is successwithstories.com slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And if you like this episode, share it with someone you know who would also like it. If you want to be a guest on the podcast or know someone who would be a great guest on the show, let me know. Thank you. And we will see you next time on the Small Business Storytellers.